everyone. I'm Summer Shafi. And I'm Angela Yuan. Welcome to our podcast, Modernism, Stages of America's Rhythmic Coup d'etat. Today, we'll be talking about transformations in the 20th century music in a chronological order, as well as their correlation with the rising modernist ideologies. So, modernism, what is it? It's um, a movement deviant from the traditional canon of aesthetics that was especially popular from the late 19th to the early 20th century. Right. That also includes a style in the arts that aimed to break classical, or like you said, traditional norms. Many often shred modernism with a layer of time period related despair and powerlessness. A perfect example would be any work by Marshall Duchamp, really. Representing Dadaism, a product of people's bewilderment, gaped between the two world wars, his ready-mates were bold and carefree. And frankly, not every artist has the courage to publicly exhibit a urinal and name it the fountain during the 20th century. <laughs> exactly. And because modernism almost seemed like an attitude towards life rather than merely a way of expression, the movement stems into many more fields than visual or performing arts. Yes, but the literary term modernism is a very vague one to me. How so? Because what seems like modern now may very well be obsolete in 20 years. So for the artists, it was their willingness to risk their reputations, their creative geniuses, and their unique experience of interchanging war and peace that earned them the title and the status. The first song we're going to discuss is Over the Rainbow from the Wizard of Oz film, which came out in 1939. It was performed by Judy Garland with Harold Arlen as a composer and Eve Harburg as a lyricist. It was quite a hit back then. And still a very culturally significant number for the American public. It was ranked by the National Endowment for the Arts as number one on the listing of songs for the century. And wasn't it an incidental creation as well? I remember Walter Rimmler described the story in his biography of Arlen called The Man That Got Away, The Life and Songs of Harold Arlen. Yep. The following is Harold Arlen's first-hand account of the creation. I said to Mrs. Arlen, let's go to Grandma's Chinese. You drive the car, I don't feel too well right now. I wasn't thinking of work. I wasn't consciously thinking of work, I just wanted to relax. And as we drove by Shrub's drugstore on the sunset, I said, pull over, please. And we stopped. And I really don't know why, bless the muses. And it took out my little bit of manuscript and put down what you know now as Over the Rainbow. 
let's let's recreate the scenario sometimes. Maybe one of us can come up with a piece as great as this. <laughs> I'm not sure that's how it works. But in all seriousness, it's hard to imagine that out of such randomness comes a song that set many firsts to modern film numbers. It is one of the first musicals to make music scores a part of the narrative to enhance the plot. Like the songs, if only I had a brain, if only I had a heart. Oh, I will tell you why. The ocean's near the shore. I could think of things I never thought before, and then I'd sit. And think some more. Exactly, the characters tell their stories through music, which wasn't true of some musicals before, where their songs are really just there for decorative purposes. Kim Caprio, who grew up in the 80s and 90s, talked about her interpretation and the song "Over the Rainbow." So you heard the song "Over the Rainbow," right? From、yeah. the Wizard of yeah, Oz. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>、um, So about、um, many people have different interpretations for the the song and the film.、Um, some say it's like a great、um, escapist work because of the the Great Depression that was happening, and the song was offering an escape for people into like a better world.、Um, what do what do you think about that? <laughs> um, well, I think that. Of course, you get into um, in, into um, what's her name? I'm blanking on her name. Judy Garland. Judy Garland's、yeah. entire career and and how she was kind of being um, um, molded by、um, you know MGM and、mm-hmm. with Mickey Rooney and everything, and they the purpose really was to、um, provide an alternate. Perspective on、um, post-war, you know, post-depression life, and there's all these. There's a ton of studies actually about、um, the Wizard of Oz, and actually beyond just the song, how it converts from black and white to color,、mm-hmm. um, and and how the the tone of the movie changes. So I think that the song kind of does. <clears throat> go from the black and white portion of the movie to the color portion. It kind of it's a foreshadowing, I guess, of the color portion of the movie. And、mm-hmm. if I don't know if you know this, but you can start playing Pink Floyd, The Wall. If you start playing the album、mm-hmm. and turn off the movie sound of of、uh, The Wizard of Oz, you turn、mm-hmm. off the sound, and exact and exactly when the lion. Roars for the third time. Okay. You start the wall. It will play a very interesting soundtrack underneath the movie. Huh. So is that like a hidden? It's、secret? like a, it, there's a little <laughs> hidden like weirdness kind of LSD type you know influence there, but they did、okay. it intentionally. Well, no one knows that they did it intentionally, but they、mm-hmm. think it, that they did. Like Kim talked about, the 1939 version of the movie *Wizard of Oz* was shot both in sepia tone and in Technicolor. When Dorothy enters the magical realm and when *Over the Rainbow* plays, the film suddenly has color and comes alive. In this case, music isn't its own thing anymore, but it also helped to create the tone of the movie, the hopefulness, the longing. Hopefulness and longing. Does that description remind you of any period in the American history? 
I'd say that it either describes the American experience of the 30s and 40s or the corona quarantine. <laughs> A little bit of both. But for the prior, sandwiched between the horror of World War I and on the brink of World War II, many turned to cinema in search of a temporary escape. Actually, I found a New York Times music critic column back then that commented, nothing can be more escapist than this innocent make-believe. Interestingly, Walter Frisk, a music professor at Columbia University, claimed that Over the Rainbow belongs to a category of I want songs. Care to elaborate? Yeah. He compared Over the Rainbow with Someday My Prince Will Come from Snow White and the Seven Doors, released in 1937, two years before the movie Wizard of Oz came out. Listen to the lyrics of the song. Someday my prince will come, someday we'll meet again, and away to his castle we'll go, to be happy forever I know. Someday when spring is here, we'll find our love anew. Right, right, and compared to a stanza from Over the Rainbow, Someday I'll wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me, where troubles melt like lemon drops far above the chimney tops, that's where you'll find me. I just love the setting of the song, don't you? The non-specific setting in the lyrics doesn't limit the listener's imagination to a farm in Kansas, but it is broad. Everyone has chimneys and roofs, it's relatable. I agree. The song makes it easy for the listeners to indulge themselves in. Aside from the wars, what else about the 30s do you think made this so-called genre of I Want Song so popular? Definitely the Great Depression during the 30s, and the fact that humans are natural-born dreamers. And I, I think that though there is a certain level of escapism, the final message of Wizard of Oz and Over the Rainbow is really for people to gain courage through immersion, and better prepare themselves for returning to a maybe not-so-ideal day-to-day life. Let's talk about 433 by John Cage next. Released in 1952, a 4 minute and 33 seconds of silence performance has spiked some controversy and quite some confusion. Well, Kate did grow up in a very idealistically American family. His father once told him that if someone says can't, that shows you exactly what to do. Here's a short clip of 433. Still, the idea of pulling up three musicians and instead of playing by sheet music, just sitting and letting environmental sounds make up the performance, it is one of a kind. According to Cage himself, he wanted to provide listeners with a blessed four and a half minute respite from forced listening. Forced listening, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, um, there, were, there was a heavy religious influence behind Cage's notion of what is forced and what is natural. Specifically, he was intrigued by Zen in East and South Asian Buddhism. According to Second Universal Truths of Buddha, everything changes constantly. Um, kind of like how a river never stops flowing. What changes is uh, if it hits smooth water or rough ra- rocks. Right. I remember that in a book written by Cage called Silence, Lectures and Writings, he wrote that when people are listening to contemporary music, Each of us is thinking our own thoughts and experience. Each experience is different, and each experience is changing. Like life, it changes. If it were not to change, it would be dead. 
And how do you think that his definition of modern music reflects the post-war dawn of Cold War atmosphere in the U.S.? I kind of think of 433 both as an example of groundbreaking inquiry into what is true music and kind of a protest to the rigid classical definition of music. Actually, protest music was created all throughout the 20th century. Um, lots of big bands came out of that time. Um, you know, Crosby, Stills, and Nash we still listen to now. You know, most of those guys are still alive. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, The Who, most of them are still alive. Mm -hmm. um, the Be uh, the not the Beatles, the um, Rolling Stones. Um, all of, like none of those bands probably would have been around if it wasn't for the war movements. Um, uh, from the 60s, the music of the 60s and the seven, in the early 70s. Mm -hmm. um, and that contributes, you know, even to rock bands of the later 20th century. So I definitely think that instrumental rock and roll was shaped by wartime. So it kind of reflects like a need by the contemporary people, would you say that? Most of the music that came out, you know, in uh, if you listen to the, you know, Crosby, Stills and Nash and bands like that from, uh, you know, Steely Dan, they were um, protest songs. Mm -hmm. So that's how, uh, rather than protesting in the streets, um, or, and things like that, the musicians turn to their art to protest. Mm -hmm. So I think that definitely changed. And that even progresses through the evolution of hip hop and NWA and... Like Kim said, the enhancement of technology also contributed to the development of modernist music. In my, well, and I can speak more to the later 20th century, but yeah. as, as, you know, in the 80s and 90s, you know, um, we, the, the personal computer came out. I mean, these are, these were big things, you know, mm -hmm. the Apple II, um, the Mac, <laughs> I'm, I'm serious about this stuff. <laughs> and, and so you could hear a progression to, from traditional instrumental music to ele more electronic music. Mm -hmm. um, and I found that a very interesting <clears throat> evolution and it really did kind of mirror the advanced advances in technology that were in the last you know 20 years of the 20th century mm -hmm. okay let's move on to the next song right so this next song is one that became very popular very quickly take five which was released by david bubrek in 1959 now this is an interesting piece the year of jazz was around 1920s and the 30s because of all the social rebellion during the Great Depression. Swing was getting popular and they played jazz in the speakeasies. But Take Five was different, kind of the first of its kind, right? Yeah, exactly. Bubra completely conquered jazz with this album. It was called Time Out and every piece of music it contained went completely against the standard. This specific one, Take Five, was written with a 5 over 4 tempo.
because it was original. It didn't follow the rules of jazz music. Yeah. Yes, the Brubeck wasn't really into the status quo, both as an artist and as a person. He was well known for having what they called a mixed band because his bassist was black, and as progressive as America is, people kept telling him off for it, right? Like, Dave, a respectable musician, wouldn't play in a mixed band. But Brubeck wouldn't have any of that. He was constantly standing up for them, and when it came to his music, he also wouldn't settle for ordinary. Jazz and music critics were constantly surprised by his work. One of them, a man named Ted Giola, wrote about Brubeck in his book, West Coast Jazz. He called him inspired by the process of improvisation rather than by history. Now, why do you think that is? That's a good question. 1959 was kind of a year of progress, wasn't it? Entering the 60s, a lot of things are going on. Alaska and Hawaii are becoming less states. NASA picked people to go to Mercury. And America is opening up to art and making media more accessible through the popularity of television. Which was new at the time, right? Relatively. Right. So all of these things that point towards progress are happening at the same time that jazz music is making this breakthrough with Take 5, which points back to one of our definitions of modernism, a style in arts that aims to break classical or traditional forms. And Brubeck said himself, one of the reasons I believe in jazz is that the oneness of man can come through the rhythm of your heart. It's the same any place in the world that heartbeat. It's the first thing you hear when you're born or before you're born, and it's the last thing you hear. He basically told the world that jazz doesn't need a structure to work. And this theme seemed to continue, right? Right into the 70s? Specifically 1972, when Stevie Wonder released his famous album Talking Book. This one was also based on jazz and soul, but Wonder made a few changes. About 10 years into his career, Wonder decided he didn't want to follow the Motown formula, that has always been designed to produce hit singles, but Wonder wanted to be an innovator. Like Boomer. Right. Wonder wanted to write songs that would be popular for the music, yeah, but also for their message. He wanted to talk about um, social issues. That was especially clear in one of the songs in the album called The Big Brother. Listen to the lyrics of the first verse. That you're watching me on the telly See me go nowhere Your name is Big Brother You say that you're tired of me protesting Children dying every day My name is nobody 